angels in heaven that sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Lord, you are seated on high. We honor you with our voices. We proclaim with our hearts, Lord, that, that you are good, that you have made our heart of stone into a heart of flesh, that you are our kinsman redeemer. And Lord, as we open your precious word, may you speak to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Hey, uh, give Brad a hand for hooking us up with hymns this morning. He um, said he's the, he's the only guy who can do, uh, we do hymns every now and then on a Sunday. He's the only guy who can do hymns in sandals. So that's pretty, pretty cool. <clears throat> we got him. We got the only guy. So, hey, uh, if I haven't met you, my name is Jesse, and uh, for the most part, I handle most of the, the teaching opportunities here. And uh, it's a privilege to do so. And, um, and if you are visiting and you're new, we just want to let you know, first of all, we're just really glad you're here. In fact, one of the things that we do uh, is we pray. We pray for new people to come. And we pray specifically for people who don't know Jesus, that they would come and that they would hear the goodness of Christ. Uh, we, we just think it is a tremendous blessing when somebody who doesn't uh, understand Christianity, doesn't know Christianity, or is exploring it, gets invited to SBC which is here at Bible Church, and they come uh, and engage with us. And so if that's you this morning, just want to let you know we're glad that you're here. Uh, and then one of the things that we do to get you connected, if you want to get connected, if you want more information, is just head out to our info booth, right out to my right, your left, big desk, you can't miss it. It's kind of a, a real tight space we have in there and try to do a lot in there. We have a couple free gifts for you. I want to give you a free cup of coffee. Uh, we have a coupon for that from our coffee shop, which has all kinds of great flavors in there. And then we have a book that we want to give you as a gift uh, as well. And then, of course, at the info booth is where you find all your information on all our ministries and how to get to our website and how to connect with all that. So if that's you, please make sure uh, you stop by there. Uh, and then one of the things that I'll share with you as a church family is that uh, in, the, in a lead position like I'm in and for our leadership, one of the things that you just have to get used to uh, as a leader is change. How many of you enjoy change. Yeah, there's three of you. There's four. Um, <clears throat> depends on what, what, what's changing, right? If you're older and I say, do you, would you like to change a few years back? You might say yes. Um, uh, so, but it's inevitable. And uh, we, we have some things that we have changed over the years here and there. And then um, sometimes our leaders change. And one of the big changes that uh, I sent out in our newsletter, which we sent out weekly, is a change in our nursery. And so I want to invite Christy to come on up. And you can welcome Christy. Christy's been serving faithfully for a few years in our nursery program, and she's stepping down. So could you just give her a round of applause for serving well? Um, so one of the things that maybe for, for some of us, it might be lost on some of us, is, is what does it take uh, to lead and pastor and shepherd a church of around 500 people. That's about how many people come through Sierra Bible Church and call this church home. Uh, we're not a small church. We're not a big church. We're a medium-sized church. And it's really difficult for churches to kind of break through the 150 mark, which got, by God's grace we've been able to do. And it requires us to try to lead well, communicate really well, uh, and have people in place who are really good leaders and who admin and lead well. And Christy has done that for several years. She has been a huge blessing to us. Not only has she scheduled teachers in nursery to make sure that there's people in there taking care of your kids, and she's been ministering to you, it's a ministry to those who teach here as well. Because 
uh, to teach on a Sunday when there's a bunch of kids in the room is incredibly distracting. I can't tell you how difficult it is when I've had to do that on, on occasions here and there. And so she's been doing that. Well, she's stepping aside um, because she feels like God has said to her, and I've known this for a little while, she feels a deeper calling towards our youth program. So she wants to plug in with our girls in our, in our youth program and, and serve there and love there. And so she said, that she said to me, uh, when she let me know she was stepping aside, she said a couple things. Number one, this is where my heart is. Number two, I will not leave this ministry with a void. Uh, I won't step down until somebody steps up. And so I just want to make mention to you, if you want to minister in a way, first of all, that is incredibly beautiful to do so, uh, that, that you, you have an opportunity to help uh, the church as a whole thrive and do well, we're looking for someone to fill Christy's shoes. You don't have to be as attractive as her. That's okay. Um, but you do, you do need to be qualified. She told me this week, she's like, you're too gracious to me. She's, she's awesome. So um, I just want, want you guys to see her face, one, so you can thank her and honor her. It is a big deal uh, to help out in that kids program. I can tell you, it is a big deal. And, and she's done a great job. So please thank her, love, honor, give her a high five. Give her a gift card to Starbucks. Do you like Starbucks? <laughs> Actually, we, I probably shouldn't say Starbucks. We have way cooler coffee in town uh, than Starbucks. Um, you just want them to come to the hoedown. So that's a good segue. So she's also here because she wants to share with you uh, an event we've got coming up for, for those of you in the church. So Christy, go ahead and it'll, it'll work. As long as the sound guy pulls up the volume correctly, it'll work. Well, thank you, Jesse. I'm going to cry. Um, anyway, y'all, um, can I get a howdy? Howdy! <laughs> so the women's ministry is putting on um, a holy hoedown. And it's going to be a fellowshipping and fun good time on July 19th. Uh, we, want you, we want you all to come. We're hiring an actual uh, square dance caller. He's a professional. So if you've got two left feet, please come, because when you leave, you're going to know how to square dance. And also bring your sweetheart, but if you're single, you can come too. And maybe there's other people that could be your future sweetheart there. And um, we are, we're going to have uh, Come Hungry, because we're going to have uh, barbecue and lemonade. And make sure you sign up in the back so we know how many y'all are coming. And uh, wear your cowboy hat and your cowboy boots and your cowgirl dress. And we'll see you all there. Awesome. Thank you. And I really don't have an <clears throat> accent. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, and then another, another ministry that we have, I gave these guys, I'm just going to give these guys a little bit of time, is they're starting a, a ministry called Catalyst. And so, guys, you want to come on up? This is Frank and John, and they've got a heart to start something new here. And they're just going to share with you briefly on what's going on with them. So same thing, our handheld's uh, acting up. Sure, sounds good. There you go. Uh, I'm Frank Bernhardt and John Howard here. We are the MCs of a brand new ministry called Catalyst. We're really excited about it. It's been, what, a year and a half? Yeah. Yep, year and a half. Um, if you are a new high school graduate or a college graduate, this is your time. Uh, we're going to bring together pragmatic wisdom, uh, some practical thinking, uh, in a Christ-centered sort of way. So we're going to kick this off on July 12th. Yep. Uh, we're going to meet here at Ray Hall, 7 o'clock. Uh, we are already set up on Instagram, so just reach out to us through there. We'll reach out to you, and hopefully we'll get together, have some fun, have some food, and fellowship, okay? Push the wrong button, man. Uh, but we do need a couple of things. <laughs> Number one, we need, uh, we need prayer. This is a, an outreach, not here just within the church, but also within our community. So as we bring Christ to the community, 
uh, we want to be able to share this in a way that most youth and people graduating uh, probably haven't seen before. So this is very different. Uh, second thing, too, is if you know of people that have recently graduated, uh, spread this uh, through Instagram, like John said. Uh, but also, thirdly, too, is if you have um, folks in mind that are really experts in certain topics, uh, we'd love to hear from you as well. Um, we're going to be covering uh, finance. We're going to look at careers, relationships, and we're going to take this all in a very, again, Christ-centered way. So in that regard, we really want some guest speakers. So that's what Frank's kind of talking about. So quick 15-minute thing, nothing huge, no big deal. All right? Does See you out there. Questions? The questions? No. Well, that's on you. No. <laughs> I'm just kidding about that. You said July, first night is July 12th. What time? 7 o'clock. 7 p.m. You guys will see some stuff as he said on social media soon. So thank you guys. Appreciate it. Um, so... Uh, we have been on this journey. I know last week, um, my wife and I, we spent some time in Mexico, uh, spent five days visiting Travis and Amber. And Travis and Amber are our missionaries uh, that, that serve down in Mexico. They, they're serving five different orphanages. So we visited five different orphanages. They're partnering with these families down there uh, and taking care of kids down there. And then they're also starting their own orphanage. And so they've they should be closing on a piece of land here in a few days. And if you know, Travis is a local guy, played trucky football here, became a Christian uh, a little bit later in life and a little later in high school and early college years. And he and his wife and his two kids have felt just a tremendous call there. And so we got to spend five days just seeing some amazing, uh, beautiful um, th kids, really, man. I, I can't tell you what it does to be sitting with these kids and these families who, who are literally raising kids that aren't their own. And in fact, one of the, the things I'll share, and we'll hand out Bibles here in a moment here, John, but um, when, <clears throat> when we were down there, so, so you're kind of aware, like here, if a child is being threatened or beaten or abused in any way, uh, what we do in the States, the CPS gets involved, they remove the children from the home, and then somebody, like someone here in the church, we have several families who do it, or foster families, and you bring the child in. And the goal in bringing the child in would be, first of all, to give them a safe environment in hopes that for a period of time that the, their mother and their father would get to a place where they could take care of their own child. Or someone in the family would step up and take care of the child. Or uh, you would end up being the one who maybe takes the child and raises the child. In Mexico, they don't have CPS. They have a program that does exactly what CPS does, but they don't have a fostering program. They don't pay for the fostering program. It is, it is just by the benevolence of individuals who say, there's a child who's being threatened. We will take that child, and we will care for them until we can reconnect them with a family member or what have you. Uh, and so it's, it's peer donation-based. Basically, the only way a child is considered safe is to be taken out of the home, and then for someone like yourself to donate or to give or to help. And oftentimes in Mexico, what happens is the parents... The parents don't get back involved in the children's life, and the relatives can't afford to take care of the children. And so these whole orphanages start out, literally, imagine this now. You, you take a child at five, and what these orphanages do is they, take, they bring this child in at five years old. They can't connect them. They essentially raise the child up uh, through adulthood, and some of these orphanages actually are able to raise enough money to help provide for education and college for some of these kids. It's really incredible. And it isn't something that they have. I mean, I, I literally um, went to some of these orphanages that don't have running toilets. 
And, and this is the environment that they live in. Some of them are a little nicer than others. And, and in fact, we were, um, we were down there one night, and there's a family, by God's grace, who's raised support. They've taken in 20 kids, and they set it up as a house. And so they're in a living room, and there's rooms, and the kids stay there, and they try to raise them just as they're part of the family. They've got their birthdays on the wall. And, and, um, and so Travis says, says, this is what we're doing tonight. We're going to take these kids to a taco shop. And, and just so you know, these kids don't ever get to eat out. And so we took the family, and we took 20 kids, ranging from, from four years old all the way to, like, 15. I went to this taco shop, and we enjoyed God's creation in tacos. And, uh, and these kids are just eating their, their food, and they're loving it. They're, they're drinking Mexican Coke, which is way better than American Coke. And, um, and it just was a beautiful time. And, and I, Travis said to me, this is one of the things that we do. And he said, in fact, one of my nieces, who's, I think she was 10 years old, uh, she had a birthday. And for her birthday at 10 years old, someone gave her $100. And this niece of Travis's, who lives in the States, said to Travis and Amber, they said, for my birthday, I want to give you the $100 so you can take these kids out to dinner. And so we... we we, all, we sat down, and these kids dined in a way that they, never, they hardly ever get to do. Travis tries to do it at least once a year. And, um, and so here we are, because of some girl on her birthday, gave 100 bucks to feed close to 30 people, and they are just smiling and eating and loving it. And uh, Travis said one time he tried to bless them, because he's not too far from the San Diego border. He tried to bless them by getting... Uh, like Buca de Beppo or something like that in the States, and he brought it over. He said the kids hated it. <laughs> he said he learned, he learned a lesson. Feed Mexicans Mexican food, not American food. And it's so true. I'm an American, and I hate American food. I love uh, good Chinese. I love good Mexican food. And, um, and I got really emotional. I told him, I said, hey, man, we got to share this because, because as just a small token, I didn't mention this in the first service, but I'll say it here. I mean, just imagine the kind of difference that you can make if, if for instance, you put 100 bucks in the offering box for Travis and Amber for food, you're taking out kids to dinner that have never been before. And he takes these kids every so often down to the beach because they never swim. A lot of them can't swim. And uh, I can just tell you, we, to be a part of what Travis and Amber are doing is a huge blessing. And I would really like to see us as a church continue to ramp up our support for them, especially just being there hands-on. They're doing a beautiful thing. So keep praying for them. And so that's where I was last week. And Brad Beers uh, preached last week, and, which is a tremendous blessing. And Brad, Brad made a joke. He said, he said, Jesse's shooting for the world record for being in the book of Ruth. <laughs> he kind of threw me under the bus a little bit there. And uh, I went up to him uh, after the service last week and said, you do know I have the microphone this week. <laughs> and uh, I, I might say a few things. And I, I will say this. This is what I'll say about Brad. He, he does a tremendous job. He's a huge blessing for our church. And he's an incredible teacher. The response I get from you guys and what God does through him and for him to be part of our leadership team is a huge grace. And so um, in addition to someone like Christy, we are just so blessed with just some incredible people on our team. So could you just honor Brad for stepping in there? And, um, <clears throat> yeah. Make fun of me less, though. Yeah. You're funnier looking than him, so 
<clears throat> Careful, I have the microphone. Hey, uh, in all seriousness, though, if, if, uh, if um, we could take a moment to step aside from, from just that joking and honor God's word, would you, uh, first of all, raise your hand if you don't have a Bible. One of the guys would love to hand you one. Uh, turn to the book of Ruth. And um, it's been purposeful, as they're handing these out, it, it has been purposeful for me to take time in this book. I, I didn't set out to, to go as long in the book of Ruth as I, as I have. And we'll, we'll do some work in the book this week, and we'll most likely, 90% sure, I'm going to conclude next week. But, you know, one of my um, responsibilities that weighs heavy on me is that God has called me to, to not only you know, teach God's word, but to shepherd us as a family. And that requires that, that I have to be involved in your life to some degree or another. For some of you, more, it's more, and for some, it's a little less, and for some, it'll be more down the road, but I have to be in touch with where our church is at. Last year was a difficult year, not only for us as a church, because of some of the things we went through and some of the things the leadership went through, but it's been difficult for many of you. It's been a, it was a hard year last year. I think my wife said, because summertime has been renewal for us, she said, I think winter's finally over. She said that yesterday to me. I said, is it? Is it? Because um, it's felt like fall a little bit, yeah? And, uh, and, and the book of Ruth is, is a book that literally moves from sorrow to joy, from fruitlessness to fruitfulness. And, um, and you know, we were going through, when we started going through hard stuff as a church, we were studying through the book of James. And the book of James tells us what we should do, that faith works. If you love God, you're actually going to do something with your faith. You're not going to just come to church. You're going to actually live it out. You're going to give your time. You're going to give your treasure. You're going to give your talent to Jesus. And James starts out that book, Count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Count it joy that God is producing and perfecting something inside of you. And so as I was preparing to teach Ruth, I thought this would be fitting because in many ways it's a book that moves from trial, again, to great joy, to fruitfulness. And to some degree, God has, I think, honored that. That doesn't mean that there aren't trials in this room, and it doesn't mean that there won't be trials tomorrow, but I think, I think as a whole, we could be entering into a season where God starts to kind of answer some prayers. That's my hope. It's my dream. But God, God does not have to do what I tell him to. I have to do what he tells me to do. And so uh, this morning, we're going to read the conclusion of this beautiful book, where a woman who was once a Moabite woman has now entered away from Moab, a place of false worship and hurt and pain. Ruth has literally left her family and her God of worship for her mother-in-law. Both of these w women are widows and has now moved into Israel and has encountered a man that could probably redeem her, save her in Boaz. And after she does what she does in chapter 3, she sneaks into Boaz's room in the middle of the night after putting on perfume and good clothing. And she sneaks under his covers at his feet and awakens him and essentially asks Boaz, will you marry me? And in chapter 3, Boaz 
shows great restraint because Boaz is a godly man who loves Yahweh. And in his restraint, he says there is a process in which we must go through because there actually is another man who probably has the rights to marry you and to redeem you. We've got to make sure that he isn't willing to take you before I take you. So there's this glimmer of hope. And so we come to chapter 4, verse 1. And if you're able to this morning, would you please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's spoken word, written word to us. Ruth has gone home to Naomi. Boaz now goes to the gate, the center of the city where all would pass through. And it says this in verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate, sat down, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and he sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city And he said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders and of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there's no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the land of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction One would draw off his sandal and give it to the other, and this was the manner attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, your witnesses this day, that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech, that belonged to Chilion and Malon, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, and I have bought her to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that that name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. If you would, jump down to verse 13. We'll cover some of the other verses next week. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. He went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For the daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Solomon, Solomon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, and Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. And the church said, Amen. You may be seated. So, <clears throat> the contrast from chapter 1 
to chapter 4 couldn't be any more stark and revealing. Imagine the trial and the tribulation of just Naomi alone. The beginning of the book starts with Naomi and her husband leaving Bethlehem, God's place of food and provision, because there's famine. And in the famine, they decide for themselves, well, we must take things into our own hands, leave Bethlehem, go to Moab where we can receive food, and just leave behind kind of God's way, if you will. The journey ends up in complete disaster. Naomi loses her husband. She gains two daughter-in-laws, but both of her sons have died. In chapter 1, if you just shorten it, if you will, Naomi not only becomes a widow, but she loses two, her only two children. And she's left with two daughters, but they're not her own. They were married to her sons. One of which decides to stay in Moab, but the other, Ruth, who the book is about, decides to leave her homeland and move to this new place. She's leaving behind everything, and there is no guarantee of anything. The book begins with tragedy, loss, death, violence stripped from a family. If you can imagine, I'm sure these women, when they went home, especially Ruth from the field, she probably didn't go home with a happy look on her face. I'm sure for a long time she cried and she wept. I have actually pastored and been with people who have lost loved ones. I've been in a few situations where literally I've been with someone who has lost their husband, has been left as a widow to raise their children alone. I can tell you there is no... No more violent cry than that in which I have heard from a widow. It is deep. It is agonizing. It is intense. It is filled with loss and fret and uncertainty. The book teaches us that God works inside of such tragedy, that God is inside of loss. Chapter 1 gives us this glimpse of a horrid loss of widowhood, Uh, uh, uncertainty of children, provision from family. None of it is guaranteed. Even when Ruth and Naomi finally come back to Bethlehem, she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for I am bitter, for God's hand feels against me. That's been my life. God hates me, essentially is what she says. But then we enter into chapter four. Can it get any happier? Naomi, who once is a widow, is sitting at the end of this book with a grandson in her lap, a beautiful baby boy who holds the promise of a Messiah and the redemption of millions. It gives me tingles. So I think some pastors call it Holy Spirit goosebumps. I don't know if there's such a thing. But to just see a woman go from loss to sitting down with this child, a peaceful baby lay in her lap, and inside of this child is the hope of the world. Really, the idea of Ruth, as we step back from from chapter 4 into the entire of the book, there's a theme in this book, and the theme is this. The life of the godly is not a straight line to glory. We don't just directly get there, but we do get there. In fact, John Piper says it this way. The life of the godly, godly is not an interstate through Nebraska. It is rather a road through the Blue Ridge Mountains of Tennessee. There are rock slides and precipices 
dark mists, bears, and slippery curves, and hairpin turns that make you go backwards in order to go forwards. But all along this hazarded, hazardous, twisted road that doesn't let you see very far, far ahead, there are frequent signs that say, the best is yet to come. The theme of the book is for us to understand that God, God is going to, to sometimes make a step backward to move forward. That God uses hardships for his glory and his good. And we have to trust his goodness in this reality. Romans 8.28, for instance, how does it read? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purposes. In chapter 4, we see everything ripped apart. But now we see in chapter 4, God putting it all back together. If you actually go back to chapter 1, you're introduced to three characters in this order. Naomi, Boaz, I'm sorry, uh, Naomi, Ruth, and then Boaz. Naomi, Ruth, and then Boaz. How does chapter 4 end? In the reverse order. Boaz, Ruth, and then Naomi. It's as if God is eloquently showing how he's putting it all back together. And we're also introduced to one of those weird little languages in chapter 4 you miss in the English language. Do you remember when it said that Ruth happened by chance to enter into the field of Boaz in chapter 2? Right, the language in chapter 2, it literally reads like this, Ruth by chance chanced upon the Ruth of Boaz. It, it just kind of happened. It's, it's the author's way of saying, this is no accident, my friend. It looks like an accident. It looks like, like there's no, no connection from one thing to another. It's the author's way of saying, no, 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 she happened upon this particular field because God is involved in even the most smallest of things. And so likewise in chapter 4, after Boaz says, I, I, I've got to... I've got to find this other redeemer. So he goes to the gate, which everyone's got to pass through the gate of the city to go into the fields. It's the place where business is done at the time. It's, it's the place where law is kind of put together. And so he sits there, and, and look at the language in verse 1 of chapter 4, and what does it say? And behold. Like this is the similar language of chapter 2 that she chanced by chance. This is, well, the redeemer happened to come through the gate that day. You know, by chance. But the reality is, is it wasn't by chance. It was by God's decree. His providence is all over the book. And my friends, his providence is all over you to work out good for you. But there is no way that you can connect how your tragedy and your loss and your trial and your sorrow and your sin and what it's going to do for somebody else 100 years from now. There's no way for you to know. That's why the author pulls back, and, and, I, and the, the, the illustration I used in the first service, and uh, it didn't go as well as I wanted it to, but I'm still going to use it in this service. How many of you have seen the movie Ants? Oh, thank you, Lord. Like, twice as many as the first service. There's like literally, like literally three people in the first service. They've never seen it. Now, as a father of four, I watch my fair share of cartoons. <clears throat> which isn't always a great joy to me, especially when you've seen the movie 15 to 20 times. The movie Ants is this uh, story, really, that focuses on one particular ant. It's a teeny guy. And throughout the whole movie, he is fighting and working and travailing to get the love of another ant. 
It's the whole movie. Guy loves girl. It's kind of like all our movie. And what happens is finally at the end of the movie, he gets the gal, and the movie pans out. Do you remember? Right? For, for an hour and a half, we're, we're in this little teeny anthill, and as the movie pans out, and it backs out, and the movie comes from the anthill and winds out into a park, which winds out into a city, and we realize that all of this has been happening inside of New York City, inside New York Park. And what, the, what they're trying to do is they're trying to relate the travail and the hardship of a minuscule, obscure little ant to the life of so many in a city that the ant's life really correlates with our life as well. We're travailing and we're working. We want some love. We want, we want good relationships. We want a greater glory. And, and really, the end of Ruth is doing exactly that for us. For several messages, we've been focusing on just this minuscule Ruth, tiny little Boaz in a field in Bethlehem. And then at the end of chapter 4, we have this list of names, Jesse and Solomon and Boaz and Obed, who then eventually comes to David, who comes to Jesus. It's the author's way of saying, see this little teeny book? It's actually all about the entire world. It's not just about the redemption of Ruth. It's about the redemption of all of mankind. And we step back and we realize that God, that God's desire is to take all of your hardships and then work them back together and put them back together. But do you know why that is so incredibly difficult for us to do? Go back to chapter 3. Like, oh, I thought we were going to finish 4 maybe this morning. No. <laughs> chapter 3. <clears throat> Just go back to that passage here for a minute. And I want you to take into account after Boaz has had this conversation with Ruth, after she has said, will you marry me? This is his advice. He tells her to go back home. And then Naomi, the wiser mother-in-law, in verse 18, look at how she replies. Wait, my daughter. Wait. How many of you are patient? How many of you like waiting See, part of our problem is we're not wired to be patient. We're not wired to wait. My experience has led me to a, a reality in regards to when we are put in a place to wait on God, especially when we're in trial. One response is anger and frustration. God, why? Why would you do this to me? Why would it go this way? If you're not someone who's prone to anger and frustration you might then be prone towards the second reality that occurs, which is doubt. Maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe he's not faithful to me. But see, we're, we're just not built to really wait. So this is lost on us, this reality that really we've got, see, this is kind of, the book almost doesn't do us a, any, any, any favors in that it's four chapters, which covers over 10 years. So we read it and we're like, like, like Brad said, well, Jesse's going for the world record. Well, we didn't live it. Like, we've taken some time in it. But the book occurred over well over a 10-year period of time. And we've scrunched it into this beautiful four chapters, but we can't lose sight of the fact that it took some time for Naomi to finally get to the place where the baby was in her lap. According to a survey by the Curious Bank, more than half of Americans hang up the phone after being kept on hold for one minute or less. That's how good we are at waiting. 
The same survey says 96% of us, 96% of us will knowingly consume extremely hot food or drinks that burn our mouths. (laughs) You can't wait. It says on the coffee cup, it's hot. Don't sue us if it burns your mouth. It's hot. See the sleeve? It's hot. Don't drink it. I can't wait. It's hot. I can't believe how hot it is. Listen, listen, as this continues to move forward here, 45% of the millennials, for instance, say technology has made them more impatient today than they were five years ago. In the same survey, 41% say they wouldn't wait longer than 15 minutes for an Uber. Only 26% are prepared to wait more than 30 minutes for takeout. We're so impatient as the culture, we're impatient about impatience. We want everything now. As I read some of these surveys, I read that the average person, when they start a new show on Netflix or Hulu, will watch seven to eight episodes in a row before turning it off. Do you remember? I know Josh remembers. Do you remember when you had to wait a week? Like, wow, that was a great episode. See you in seven days. Do you remember that? It's like, some of you do. Some of you don't. Some of you are so young, you have no idea what I'm talking about. I still remember having to get up out of my couch to turn the knob and go, next channel, sit down, think I want to watch it. Commercial's over, then you got to get back up. Gee, mini Christmas, what kind of technology is this? Turn it again. I was telling someone this week, I said, I, I've, become, I've become an HD snob. If I see a television program that's not in high def, I can't watch it. Now we're to the point where, where we're watching seven episodes, and then we get frustrated that the next episode isn't downloading fast enough, that we then call suddenly and go, hey, why is it taking so long? What's up with my internet connection? Then they put us on hold, and we hang up, and then we reboot the thing all over again. That's how impatient we are. We do not know how to wait for anything, let alone how to wait for God. God is not fast, but he's faithful. He may not be quick in healing you. He may not be fast in bringing you the right person or even to give you children. That was my story with my wife and I. I didn't even know if I wanted to have kids. I went down to San Diego, I was the youth pastor at the time, and a pastor of mine looked at me in the face and he said, listen, man, I know you're saying you don't want to have kids. Why don't you want to have kids? I said, well, I'm too selfish to have kids. And I still am too selfish to have kids. And, I, and he said to me, he said, you know, God has wired many women, not all, but many women to childbear and to raise children. That is a gift that God has given particular women. And what you're doing is you are holding back a gift from your wife. And it was God who spoke to me. It was a man, but it was God. And I went home and I said, Let's start making babies. (laughs) And you know what happened? We had miscarriage after miscarriage after miscarriage after miscarriage. To the point where my wife and I were looking at DNA testing and trying to figure out what was going on. The family in the church graciously said, hey, we'll, we'll pay for you. We got an expert down in the area over here and we'll pay for you to figure this out. So we were getting ready to make appointments and getting ready to go down to the Bay Area and figure out what God wanted to do. And it was the first time in my life I started to realize, man, I really do want kids. Now that it was off the table and I knew it was off the table and, and now God's causing me to wait, I wanted to have kids at 30, which is late for a lot of people. Not so much in culture anymore. It's getting pushed above. It took three years. I started making the appointment. And right before we made the phone call, Allie walks into the room and she says, guess what? 
I got another one in the oven. I hope it sticks. And then once her body figured out what to do, couldn't make it stop. God said, I'm going to fulfill you beyond anything you could ever think or imagine. And for me, four kids is above and beyond anything I could think or imagine. God has been good to us. He's been so good to us. But we're just not wired, unfortunately, in our culture to wait upon the faithful God of the Bible. What is it that you're going through? That God is saying, be faithful as God is faithful. Be patient. Wait. Because what I've found in the reality of waiting on God, see, one of the reasons we don't like to wait, it's actually tied into a deep theological problem the church has by and large. And it's the deep theological problem that somehow we think we can actually control our lives. That we think we have to work and do something to get God to give us favor. That if I do this, God will do that. And we end up in this transaction. And and I've seen it over the years. I've seen people come into the office and say, I've been doing everything right, as if somehow God owes you because you did it right. This is the God of the universe for crying out loud. It's not as if you tithe and you put some money in the box that God goes, well, this will be a good week for you. That's not how God works. Because God is what we get. If you remember, there's this a tremendous story in the Old Testament I was listening to uh, this morning on my own. You remember when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego encounter King Nebuchadnezzar? Technically, they're worldly king. King Nebuchadnezzar says to them, you, you can worship your God in private, but publicly you've got to worship my God. And they deny that reality. We will not worship your God. It is a false God. And so the response is they say, they say to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if you refuse to worship my God, I'm going to bind you, all three of you, I'm going to throw you in a furnace, and you're going to burn to death. You're going to die. You're going to die because of your faith. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego look at King Nebuchadnezzar, and they say something really interesting that is, has paradox to it. And this is what they say. We will not bow down to your God, for it's not the real living God. So we shall never do that. However, if you throw us in the fire, God will save us. And if he doesn't, God's still good. Do you hear the paradox? To declare to the king, throw me in the fire, we shall be saved. We'll live. But if he doesn't, does that sound real sure about things? And you know why they said that? Because they weren't interested in God for what God could do for them. They were interested in God because God's God. They wanted God. They didn't want God to perform. They didn't want God to act. Just wanted God. And as you read the story, you know they're inside the fire. They're walking around. The fire's so hot you can't get near it without being scolded, the text says. And then looks the king and he says, how many people did we throw in there? Three, there's four. And one looks like the Son of God, a theophany, a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament inside the fire, walking with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All of this to be said that you and I have to realize that we can't wait because we want God to perform for us instead of us just worshiping and sitting and being with God and experiencing God's goodness 
the transcendence of God, that he's so far above us, more than we could ever think or imagine, that he understands things about life that we don't understand. We don't know how he's going to use your tragedy and your hurt and your pain for his good, but we do know that he has a history within this beautiful book of using suffering for the good of others. I think we also struggle because in reality, we want our lives to glorify ourselves. We don't want to pay it down the road. You know, I'm investing in our church and in you and in my kids for the next generation and the next generation and the next generation because the Bible teaches me that there are more people that he desires to bring into the kingdom of God and that we don't live just for this world. We live for one that's better than this one. There's a greater promise. And here's the thing, though. Be sure of this. We wait, but God works. We wait, but God works. See, it's, it's, it's understanding something that's really quite amazing. God works for you. I told the first service that, that, that when I make this statement, I want those of you who, who are theological thinkers to be a little bit offended by the statement. God works for you. Now, you understand in that statement, if you're theologically minded, there's something wrong with it at surface level. Because we know that God works for nobody. He's God. He's self-sustaining. He doesn't need us. He just loves us. He cares about us. But he does does not need you and I. Do you know that? If that offends you, it's because you have too high a view of yourself. But the declaration of that God works for us is not a prideful declaration. It's an admission that you can't do it. It's an admission that you can't work. You can't do it enough. Again, to quote Piper, he says, the proper connotation of saying God works for me is that I am bankrupt and I need a bailout. I am weak and need someone strong. I am endangered and I need a protector. I am foolish and I need someone wise. I am lost and I need a rescuer. God, would you work for me? See, when you, when you realize that God works for you, you're able to go into your prayer closet and absolutely do nothing but pray while God does the thing that he needs to do behind the scenes and he's working things out. And he's, he, I mean, in fact, the Bible tells us all the things that God does for us. Listen carefully what he says. This, I can't give you all the scriptures for it this morning, but he sanctifies us, he prays for us, he guides us, he helps us, he protects us, guards us, he loves you, he comforts you, he rebukes you when you're wrong. He makes you part of a large family. He enables you to live by faith. He does the impossible. And there's oh so much more that God is constantly doing on your behalf. God is working on your behalf. Amen? This morning, it would be my prayer and my hope that you would feel that God is for you, radically, radically for you. Not to harm you. Not to hurt you. In fact, I think it's, what does it say here in uh, Psalm twenty-seven, fourteen? Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. And then he repeats himself. Wait for the Lord. You remember, as I said, we were in James not that long ago. And what does James say about waiting? Be patient. Be patient till the coming of the Lord. And then he gives us a picture James is so good to us in in giving us a picture in nature. And he says, look at how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it 
until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Isn't that interesting from a state? Be patient, it's at hand. Be patient, it's at hand. And he's giving us this idea that, that God, God's timeline and our timeline are really, really different. When you're measuring things by millions of years, it looks a whole lot different than when you're measuring them by 80, does it not? We get so wrapped up in the, in the drive-through experience of life. I mean, that's, I'm not a patient person. And I've been in the moment where I'm hangry. You know what hangry is? <laughs> that was a hearty amen there. Like, mm. And you just, you wait in that drive-through, where is my freaking cheeseburger? We're not good at waiting, but God is good at working. Isaiah 64, 4. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by ear. No eye has seen God besides you who acts for those who wait upon him. Philippians 2, 13. For it is God who works in you. That's such good news. So there's a couple different pieces of application I want to throw out here. One is for you to be patient in regards to what God is doing inside of you. The other part of that is for you to be patient inside this room with those that God is wrestling with and working through in them. One of the things that drives me bananas about the church is when somebody feels or believes that somebody should be further progressed in their faith than they really are. It drives me crazy. It's the whole take the, the log out of your own eye before you take the splinter out of their eye. And it's meant to be a ridiculous illustration. Imagine walking around with this huge thing and, let me, let me get this out of your face. It's ridiculous. Because we can always look back and say, there's things that God's doing in me. So I have to be patient with what God's doing in me. How many of you have been a Christian long enough to know that God is incredibly patient with you and growing you and, and helping you learn things over a very long period of time? So the Bible says, says that for Christians, what real love is, real love is long suffering. That's what real love is. It's not short suffering. It's long suffering. That's why in the next translation, for those of you who are married, you need to be very patient and long-suffering with your spouse because it's going to take your spouse a lot longer to figure out something that you've already figured out, but you're not even aware of what you don't know that he's trying to help you figure out. You understand what I'm saying? This part of long-suffering, being patient and waiting on God. How about parenting? Anybody long suffering there i've told you before every time i put my kids in bed it's i put on my long suffering cap because bedtime's at eight why are you in my room at 10 30 two and a half hours of long suffering for the last eight years we all have our little things patience impatience waiting on the lord and i want you to see as we start to conclude here this morning, I want you to see the goodness of God that Boaz is the picture of Jesus Christ and Boaz gets up early in the morning and he goes to the gate and he sits down with the leaders and he has a hard meeting and he redeems and he wins over his new bride and he takes her home and he loves her. And out of that love, they produce a beautiful baby boy 
who gives Naomi hope. You notice in the text it says something interesting. That Naomi and Obed to that Ruth and Obed to Ruth to Naomi were like seven sons. She lost two, but she gained what scripture says sevenfold. See, when God takes, he always gives back way more than what he took. And he's faithful in it, and he's good in it. So the last several weeks, uh, maybe it's been a little over a month, maybe two months, I've been practicing this whole next step thing. Just a way for you, it's in your program, it normally is on the screen, something happened with it this morning, but, um, and it's just something tangible for you to take from the message, that when you leave here, you try, you try to take, take whatever I stated, and what can, how can I use this in my life? So I'm going to give you two. If you've already read them, you already know that they're a little, they might be a little difficult. Here's the first one. Number one, turn off your phone one full day this week as an act of waiting on the Lord. Yeah, see, there's some giggle in the room because you already know. Right? When you, when you are able to detach yourself from your phone as an act of waiting on God, you're, you're saying, I don't want immediacy. I don't, want to have being, I don't need to be connected all the time to everything. I just need to be connected to Jesus. That's what that act is. And then as you're feeling the temptation, pray this week, this is number two, for God to show you how he's using your trials to bring about your good and your glory, his glory. Ask God to reveal to you why you have had to go through what you've had to go through or you're going through what you need to go through. Ask to get into a secret place with God. Why are you doing this, Lord? And maybe he'll give you an answer that you could never think or imagine. So when you feel that temptation to swipe up, or if you're one of those sinners, to swipe left or right. <laughs> Set it all aside. Seek God's face. And ask him to do a work in you that only God is capable of. Because he's working for you. Let's pray. Lord, <clears throat> we thank you that you're faithful. Even when we're not. We thank you that you've included us into your redemption story of renewal and hope. If I'm honest, I, I know without a shadow of a doubt that there are people within earshot of my voice or even online, whether it's on YouTube or the podcast, that probably feel hopeless in their circumstance, that my words fall incredibly short of giving hope. And I acknowledge that before you. But at the same time, I trust that you are good enough in your time to enter into the hearts that need it the most and bring redemption and salvation and healing to them. And I pray for that for them individually, Lord. And for us as a church, renew us, make us fruitful in your name, do great things in our lives that we, that we may proclaim of your goodness. We trust you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.